Hello, and thank you for joining us today on Mainly Matters. My name is John Breyer, and today I'm going to be telling you a story about something that happened in the mid-90s in Portland, Maine, with the Portland Police Department and uh, Chief Chitwood, who was chief of police at the time. Um, Back in the mid-90s, I personally, I had just come off active duty in the Army and had completed my um, master's degree at Thomas College in Waterville, Maine, with an MBA. And I had taken a job as the executive director of the Big Brothers Big Sisters Agency in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, during that time, um, I was also in the Massachusetts National Guard at the time. So one weekend a month, I would head down to Massachusetts and do my guard duty. Um, during that time period, I, I ran into a friend of mine in Camden, Maine, um, guy named Chris Owens. And uh, he put me back in touch with uh, another friend of mine from the Bangor area named Brian Hansen. Uh, Brian and I talked and Brian had an idea to create a network of non-alcoholic nightclubs throughout New England for young people, 18 and older, to gather and dance and and have fun. I thought it was an interesting idea. And um, one of Brian's business associates at the time was a guy named Ron LaValle. Ron was a pharmacist. He was older than Brian and I. We were at the time in our you know mid mid twenties, uh, Ron was a successful pharmacist. He was one of the founders of Winthrop Drug, which sold to Lavertiers, if I recall. And um, so the three of us met and we talked about it. and And Brian worked up a business plan, and it sounded like a, a neat idea. Uh, so we started to look around various cities in New England where we could open up a non-alcoholic nightclub for people eighteen and older. We formed a corporation called NECN Inc., New England Club Network, and we went down to Burlington, Vermont. Um, we were in Manchester, New Hampshire. Of course, we looked in Portland, Maine. We looked in Bangor, Maine. Ultimately, we ended up liking Portland because it was closer to where we all lived. At the time, I was living in Scarborough, and Brian was living um, in Scarborough as well, and Ron was from Gardner. So... We took our business plan and we went over to Portland City Hall and we met with uh, the code enforcement officer, uh, excuse me, the zoning director, going off memory here, no notes. (laughs) And uh, the gentleman's name was Bill Giroux, if I recall. And he took us over to a map showing the entire city of Portland. And he looked at our business plan, listened to what we had to say, and he said, what a great idea. This is what we need in Portland. We have way too many bars. So Long story short, he took us over to the zoning map. He showed us all the areas of the city where our intended use would be allowed to happen uh, from a licensing perspective. All we needed was an entertainment license because we weren't going to sell any alcohol, so there was no liquor license involved. So we, uh, with with that information, we started looking at various lease spaces, and we found a place on uh, in the old port on Wharf Street, 50 Wharf Street to be specific. It was available for lease. Uh, We got in contact with the landlord, a a famous uh, Portland, old port landlord, a gentleman named Joe Soley. Uh, He listened to our plan. He thought it was a decent idea as well, and he agreed to lease us the space. So we signed a multi-year lease, and we spent the next several months, uh, closer to four months, renovating the space, getting ready. Of course, we went up to uh, City Hall and applied for all our licenses, which actually, as I said, was only the entertainment license. We got it. 
and uh, put a lot of money into it um, and got it ready to open. And it was actually opening on Friday, December 17th. I remember that date specifically because uh, that was my birthday. So in preparation for the grand opening, we had a lot of advertising going on in the city of Portland and, and around southern Maine. And we were going to have a live uh, radio station there for the grand opening with a radio station out of Saco called WRED. And um, those ads started playing and, you know, people were getting excited and hearing about it. But apparently those ads were heard by uh, the Portland police management team and they didn't like it because we were going to be open in the old port until 2 a.m. The bars shut down at 1 a.m., which they had to do because they had a liquor license. Our thinking was we'd stay open till 2 and give some of those people, uh, younger people that might have wanted to stay out an extra hour, a chance to come and dance and and um, maybe sober up if they were going to drive or, or just have an extra hour of entertainment. And all of that was shared with the city before we got our entertainment license. And again, they said it was a great idea. So anyways, it's Friday, uh, December 17th. It's around 4 o'clock in the afternoon of our grand opening evening. And uh, two gentlemen walked in to the building. And um, one of them walked over and said, I need to see someone from the management. I was actually up on a ladder doing some last second spray painting. I stepped down and said, well, I'm one of the owners. And he said, I'm Deputy Chief Roberts. You're shut down. And he stuck his hand out and he put a letter, an envelope into my chest area. I quickly opened the envelope and it was City of Portland letterhead and said that due to public safety concerns, uh, we our, our entertainment license was revoked um, and that there was going to be a license revocation hearing scheduled shortly thereafter. So uh, Brian and I you know, took off running up to City Hall uh, from the old port. Of course, it's a week before Christmas at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. We got into City Hall. There wasn't very many people there. Um, there was nobody there, actually. And we were kind of wandering around the halls. And uh, someone popped their head out. And I believe it, on memory serves, it was the assistant city clerk. Uh, I think her name was Nadine Daniels. Anyway, she came out and, you know, we explained to her real quickly, you know, what was going on. And we showed her the letter. We said, this is not legal. We've invested a lot of money, you know. We're going to get lawyers. You know, we were obviously upset and animated about what was happening. She asked us to wait a second, and she went in and made a couple phone calls. And she came back out, and she told us that the police department uh, wasn't notified that we were going to open because they weren't required to be notified. If we had had a liquor license or were applying for a liquor license, then the police department gets notified. So we... We had all our licenses. We had disclosed our business plan to the city. They told us this is exactly the type of business they wanted. And, um, you know, we didn't understand what was going on. But nonetheless, we were told we could open for the weekend uh, if we agreed to hire two Portland police officers to be at our business for Friday and Saturday night. Our, our business actually was only open on Friday and Saturday nights. That was the whole business plan. It wasn't open uh, during the week. So, of course, we agreed. It was a tremendous expense. I forget exactly how much, but when you hire police officers like that, you have to pay them uh, double. I think it was double their a very high salary because they're getting paid overtime. So it cost us, uh, you know, I think it was close to $1,000 to 
each night to have two Portland police officers there. But nonetheless, we agreed. Didn't like it, but we did it. And we opened. We had our grand opening, and it went was very successful, and everyone had a good time. There was no no problems. Um, the following week, which was the week before Christmas, the city told us that we could continue to stay open as long as we hired the two police officers, and that after the new year, they were going to schedule a license revocation hearing due to the police department's concerns about us being open in the old port after 1 a.m. So uh, we were forced to continue to hire the police officers and pay them the, you know, the fees to the city to, to stay open for the next uh, couple of weekends. And ironically, you know, there was all these bars in the old port, and here we are, the only non-alcoholic place, and we had to have two police officers there. But we did it. And then it came time for the license revocation hearing. So we, um, we went to that hearing, and um, we got an attorney, a uh, nice guy named Stuart Tisdale. Uh, he had been a former English teacher at Chevris, I believed, and, and then, um, you know, in his midlife area, went and went to law school and got his law degree, and he had a small law office. I think they were up on Exchange Street. So he was our attorney. We went to the license revocation hearing, um, and, you know, the city was there, and the police department was there, and they basically said that they didn't want us open because they wanted people out of the old port and had they known about our uh, entertainment license application, they would have asked that it not be granted. So uh, we presented our defense, let them know that uh, we had gotten full clearance from the city. We picked Portland because we were told this is the type of business they wanted, et cetera, et cetera. About a week later, we got the decision from the city of Portland. They agreed to allow our license to stay in effect, but they put a clause in the in the decision saying that if we had a single breach of the peace, it would be cause for immediate license revocation. That was very alarming to us because that meant if we had one incident, one police call, um, you know, had to call the police for any reason, they wanted to take our license away. So um, I went to the city of Portland police department and I asked for the public information, which you're allowed to ask for, for the number of police calls for a number of establishments throughout the old port the Old Port Tavern, uh, $3 Dewey's, diff different places that were well-known and had been there for a number of years and continually had their liquor license renewed on an annual basis with the approval of the police department. And I was able to see that these establishments had numerous police calls uh, every year, you know, anywhere from, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but some of them had, you know, into the dozens. So it was very common for the police to have to be called for one reason or another, and none of those places were subject to a license revocation. They actually were granted an approval every year. So we let the city know that if they were going to hold us to that standard, uh, that a single license revocation, you know, let a license revocation hearing uh, wouldn't even have to be had, that they would just put us out of business for a single breach of the peace or a police call, that that wasn't going to be something we would allow to happen from a legal perspective. Um, we were asked to continue to hire a police officer. We were allowed to go down to one instead of two, and we did. Uh, we agreed to do that, even though it was costing us a lot of money. Um, we did, and we operated for you know months, a number of months, without a single incident, never had to call the police. The police officer that was there never had an incident, and we had these little forms that they would fill out. We asked the police officers to fill out, asking if there was any anything that they saw during their shift that they didn't like or that was unruly or, you know, bad conduct. And 
um, each, each night the officers would fill it out. And they also had a place to say, no, there was no incidents. The business was called the cage, by the way, at the time. We had like a chain link fence motif inside, an industrial look, and the business was the cage. So the police officers were nice. We got to know the ones. There's usually the same two or three guys, one of, one of them uh, that would be there on the weekends that wanted the overtime. And they kept filling out the forms, never a breach of the peace. We just wanted them for our records. So um, that was all uh, going. The business was operating. We were, you know, cautious, but uh, no one was really bothering us. And, uh, and one Friday night, actually it was a Saturday night, Saturday night I was down in Massachusetts uh, my brother was a senior in high school at the time, my younger brother, and uh, he was playing hockey for a, a team that Chelmsford High School, they actually won the state championship that year. But nonetheless, his senior year, I wanted to go to every game. So I did. And um, he had a game that night on a Saturday in Massachusetts. So I didn't get back up to Portland until about 1030 uh, at night. When I came into the into the business, it was loud and people were dancing and having fun. And I went into the office closed the door and I could see that the answering machine had some messages on it. Back then we actually had answering machines. So I played them and one of them was a friend of mine, a guy that I knew uh, named Rob who worked in the building across the street. It was a commercial street building. And the back of that building, it was a plumbing supply business. The back of that building only had one thing you could see from its windows because of the way the old port was, all the buildings and courtyards and whatnot. So the only thing you could see from the back of his building was our courtyard, the courtyard that came with our leased space where people would go. We didn't allow anyone to smoke cigarettes in the club. So sometimes people would go out onto the patio just to get some fresh air or to smoke a cigarette. And what his message told me was that the police were there, Portland police were there that day, earlier that day, setting up cameras in the rear of his business and that the only thing you could see was our courtyard and he just thought he'd let us know. So I'm getting this message late at night. I walked out of the office and I walked by one of the windows that overlooked the courtyard and I looked up and sure enough, there's a sheet, like a bed sheet hanging in the window with a hole cut out and I could see a camera lens in the hole. So I walked by and looked at it and I asked one of our employees, one of the staff members to go take a look out the window and just kind of walk by casually and see if they saw what I saw. And they came back and said, yeah, there's definitely a camera there. So uh, a couple of us, um, the employees and myself, we walked out onto the patio. We opened the door. We looked up at the camera and we waved at it. I could see the curtain move or the sheet. Someone looked at us and then the camera lens disappeared. So we didn't know what was going on, but it was concerning, obviously. I went back into the office and I called the Portland police station and I got their switchboard and I asked them, I said, this is uh, John down at the the cage at 50 Wharf Street, is is there something going on we need to know about? Are we in danger? Are our customers in danger? And, you know, the police have a camera set up looking at our courtyard. So uh, the lady was that answered the phone, put me on hold, and she came back in a few minutes, and she said, no, uh, there's nothing you need to be worried about. I said, okay. Um, the next day, word got through the city that the police had been, you know, spying on the cage or however you want to say it, and that led to one of the newspapers, I think it was called The Phoenix, uh, doing a uh, big cartoon in their next edition that showed the chief of police, Michael Chipwood, sitting in a director's chair uh, with a megaphone, uh, one of those old Hollywood-style megaphones, um, and a big camera set uh, with the words, roll them, 
and on the megaphone it said the cage. So, um, you know, I think the police were quoted in the article as saying that the the cameras that were re- being referred to had nothing to do with the cage or its customers, which we found hard to believe because that's the only thing you could see from that vantage point was our courtyard and anyone in it would be one of our customers. So that kind of transpired in the background. But we continued to operate, had no problems, never had a police call. <clears throat> and uh, on a particular night, um, that, on a Saturday night, another Saturday night, that uh, police officer who showed up that night, I'm not going to say his name, I think he even still might be with the Portland police, but he came in and he told me that they were no longer allowed to fill out those forms. And I asked him why, and he said, I don't know, I don't get involved in politics. So I go, okay, those were the forms where they would indicate whether or not there was an incident or any type of bad behavior. And you know, at that point, we had dozens of these things filled out, and there had never been an incident. So um, that night progressed, and we had a policy. People weren't allowed to climb on the chain link fence. And um, at one point during the night, someone climbed on the fence, and we asked the gentleman to get down, and he didn't want to, and he kind of argued, and the bouncers came over and told him that if he didn't didn't stop. He would be asked to leave. And eventually they asked him to leave and kind of pushed him towards the door, you know, and, and asked him to leave in the foyer. And that's where the police officer was standing. So the police officer was just watching uh, the bouncers speak to this guy. And eventually he's outside in front of the building and uh, he starts saying, well, I'm going to go to the city. I paid my money. You know, I have rights, that sort of thing. So the police officer came out and eventually looked at him and said, look, they've asked you to leave, so please leave. At this point, the guy was standing inside on Wharf Street, not on our property, and he said, uh, I don't have to leave. I'm a citizen. I pay my taxes, that sort of thing. I'm on public property. And the police officer said, look, they've asked you to leave. If you don't leave, I'm going to arrest you. And he continued to be a wise guy and a little mouthy, and the police officer then said, you're under arrest. And I watched him pull his handcuffs out. The gentleman in the street saw the handcuffs coming out. And he said, okay, okay, I'll leave. And it looked like to me the police officer thought about just letting him leave. No one had been hurt or there was no violence going on. And he started to put his handcuffs back. But I I, I don't think they're allowed to not arrest you once they say you're under arrest. So he said, no, you're under arrest. Put your hands behind your back. The guy complied. He was saying things like, what did I do? What did I do? Police officer just said, just put your hands behind your back. He arrested him and asked him to get down on the ground. And he did. So he was laying on his stomach. Uh, the police officers didn't have cars when they worked on Wharf Street because it was a uh, close to vehicle traffic. So they would get dropped off and do their shift, you know, at the cage and then have to call for a car to pick them up. So he had this gentleman arrested. The guy was completely handcuffed, laying on his stomach. Um, the officer was kind of on his on his back with his knees on his back, no struggle whatsoever. And he made a call with his radio, which was a call for a car to come pick up someone that they had arrested because they had to get away. They had to have a way to get him to the police station. So um, it was like three minutes later, we heard sirens, a lot of sirens, and I was stunned to see coming down the street from both directions of Wharf Street, which is close to vehicular traffic, pedestrians only, cobblestone street, lots of people walking on the street. There's various restaurants and 
bars and things. Um, multiple police cars and a paddy wagon with sirens and lights are coming down Wharf Street from both directions to pick up a single person who's been arrested and is just laying there on the ground. Um, we watched the police, the, the, the car that was closest to us, um, get, the officers got out, multiple officers got out. They had leather, tan leather gloves on. One of the officers, and I won't, won't say his name, um, he walked up and we watched with our own eyes. He hit the subject who was arrested, who was laying on his stomach, right in the head with his billy club. Underhand swing. Uh, the guy was laying there. The other officer was on his back with his knees on him. Hit him in his head. Uh, his head opened up. Blood started pouring out immediately. Uh, there was probably 25 people or so that were in line to come into our business on that watched this happen and had kind of gathered as the police came. A lot of them began screaming immediately. I, I was stunned as were everyone that I was with, the people from, that worked with us. And um, they started yelling, like, what are you doing? That same officer who hit him in the head with the club then took out his mace and sprayed a big circle with that police mace that goes very far and maced everybody. Uh, immediately, it was a chaotic environment. People were in pain, screaming, couldn't see, blinded by the mace. I was having a hard time breathing because that stuff just kind of floats through the air and my eyes were hurting. So I went back into the, into the business and we closed the door but we could see everything because it was glass, aluminum framed glass doors, double set that how you got into the, the business. Um, we could see people like staggering around. The police were throwing people up against walls. We saw what looked like multiple people being arrested. They picked up uh, the gentleman who was in the handcuffs and had been hit in the head. Two police, police officers picked him up, one by the feet and one by his hands, which were behind his back, and tossed him into the paddy wagon like a sack of potatoes. And um, a couple other people were arrested that we could see, and it was just chaos. And then the police left. So we were stunned and decided we were going to close the business for the night, put all the lights on, stop the music, told everyone they had to leave. And we were just very, very concerned about what had happened. So we, uh, the next morning, which was Sunday morning, very early, uh, we left Portland, my part, business partner and I, Brian, and we drove up to uh, Oakland, Maine, where my father had a house. My father was a commercial pilot, and at that time he was off on a trip, so the house was empty. And we were very concerned that um, that this whole incident had been construed somehow. That the very first time that the police were asked to come to um, 50 Wharf Street, that they responded in such a way that they could somehow go to the media and try to get us shut down. So we, we construed uh, a fact sheet, we called it. We had a uh, computer, and we listed everything uh, that had happened from the December 17th your shutdown letter to the license revocation hearing to the cameras in the window to the police officers telling us they couldn't sign the forms anymore. We, we documented everything, and we faxed it to most of the media groups in Maine, if not all, you know, television news, newspapers. We sent it to the Boston Globe. We sent it to the Institute for Justice, which is a group in Washington that protects people from, in many ways, including police-related um, violence and um, just abuse. Uh, we also sent it to the FBI, um, the Portland Bureau, Portland Main Bureau of the FBI. And that resulted in a front-page article in the Portland Press-Herald 
following Monday and, and a lot of news coverage as well throughout the state uh, saying that uh, club owners had accused uh, the police chief of a vendetta. That resulted in uh, Chief Chitwood going on the record in the newspaper and calling us liars. He said we were liars, pure and simple. Um, so that was a very hectic time period, of course. So that that um, resulted in the FBI getting involved. We had to go talk to the FBI and get interviewed by the FBI and give them um, statements of what we saw. Um, they were investigating, you know, civil rights abuse with the from what we were describing as what we saw from the Billy Club and the macing of innocent people. Um, we we also decided to file a lawsuit. And we did. We filed a lawsuit against uh, Chief Chitwood. And uh, the city hired one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive law firm in the state of Maine to represent the city on the chief's behalf. Um, They filed a bunch of motions to try to get the lawsuit thrown out because chiefs of police have immunity on a lot of things. But the uh, courts refused to allow um, them to dismiss everything. And they agreed that him calling us liars uh, allowed us to sue for um, libel. So the lawsuit proceeded. They filed a countersuit against us saying that our fact sheet that we sent out um, was libel against the chief. So we were suing him. They were suing us. He was the defendant because we'd sued first. So um, during that process, we had to go in to Portland police and be interviewed by the Internal Affairs Division. It's just like you see on TV. I got called into a room by myself. There was a sergeant with the Portland police who identified himself, tape recorder, stated my name, had me state my name, um, the date, uh, said he was with internal affairs. And we talked about that entire incident in great detail. And same thing with uh, my business partner, Brian. He went in and was interviewed, as were other people. And um, our interviews were transcribed. And because of the lawsuit, we were able to get the transcriptions of our interviews with the Internal Affairs Department. And it was absolutely stunning. When I got the transcript of my interview, it was completely altered, as was Brian's. Every mention of the Billy Club, I mean, they just typed up something different than what we spoke. So that was the first time I was aware that you know, these type of things actually can happen. Like I would, I know what I said, it was recorded. And then they took that recording and they went and typed it up and it said something much different. And that became the official record of my interview. Um, they started, uh, they did some things like some of the bouncers were interviewed as part of the process that watched what happened with the Billy Club and whatnot. And I know, I remember one of them in particular, uh, he had, at his statement with the police, that one of the questions they asked him was, how long do you think it took the police cars to arrive after you saw the subject was arrested? And I think his initial answer was like three or four minutes. And then they showed up at his house in the middle of the night, like two in the morning, like a week later, woke him up and said, hey, are you sure it was three or four minutes or could it have been five to seven minutes or something like that? And he said, well, yeah, I guess it could have been. And then they said, okay, thank you. And then they threw his his testimony out as being unreliable because it had been <laughs> discrepancies between what he said originally and then what they had him ask him to 
talk about when they woke him up in the middle of the night at his personal residence. So the whole thing was looking not good from a um, honest investigation perspective. So uh, the trial continued and it eventually ended up in the courtroom. Uh, there was a lot of things in between, a lot of discovery. Um, we went down into Philadelphia and, and, and got some things about um, Chief Chitwood's prior work down there. And most of that, we you know, wasn't able to be introduced into our case because it was deemed to be outside the scope. Um, so the, the trial went on. We had a jury. And during the trial... We explained what happened on the stand. I explained what happened under oath. Brian Hansen explained what happened under oath. Um, we had other people that testified. And then the police officers testified. And including the one that I, you know, the ones that had been to the working at the, at the cage regularly, the one who did the arrest, uh, the one who swung the billy club, and some of the others that had arrived on the scene uh, that night. And uh, they lied. They they lied in a stunning fashion. It wasn't like, uh, I don't remember or, you know, it was the type of lie that they had to have gotten in a room and rehearsed a story before they testified. One after another, they got up and essentially their story was that uh, the subject that was arrested was violent, um, resisted arrest, that the officer was only able to get one handcuff on him, that he called for help and the police arrived to help and that the subject was standing in the middle of the street, swinging his arm wildly with one handcuff in a dangerous situation, using the loose handcuff as a potential weapon that he was saying uh, really uh, violent things to the police officers, like the F word, calling them pigs. Um, and that the police officer then used his billy club in accordance with uh, you know, the, the police regulations to non-violently or non-fatally subdue the subject. And then the uh, patrons of the club started to try to rush the police officers. So he sprayed a defensive perimeter of uh, pepper spray to protect himself and the other officers. It was complete fabrication. And it was stunning as a young man in my uh, mid-20s uh, to be watching police officers take the stand and lie. It was stunning to see internal affairs interviews that I personally gave doctored and altered. So um, watched it all. And the, the gentleman that got hit with the club and that was arrested, he testified. And what was not known to the jury, what was known to us, was that the city of Portland had paid this gentleman well over $100,000 and dropped all the charges. Bob Ganley, the city manager had used the discretionary fund, which went around the city councilors. They didn't have to know about it. And with his discretion, he paid off this gentleman and dropped his charges. The other people that were arrested, the, the patrons that were thrown against the wall after they were pepper sprayed and blinded, they also had their charges dropped and they were paid. I believe one of them got $10,000. They were paid. We were not allowed to disclose to the jury that the charges were dropped or that they'd been paid off, or it would have been an automatic mistrial because it was part of a settlement. So although the gentleman got to testify about what happened, that they hit him with the club and that he was fully handcuffed and, and all of that, he wasn't allowed 
to tell them that the charges were dropped. The, they were able to tell the jury he was charged with this and that and, you know, resisting arrest. And But no one was able to tell the jury the charges were dropped. So uh, at the end of the trial, the, um, you know, jury went to make their decision and we all went home waiting, waiting to get to the courthouse when we got the call. We got the call. We showed up at the courthouse. Uh, the jury came out. And at the end, they deemed that uh, the chief did defame us. Uh, but they also ruled that we defamed him and they awarded no money to anybody. And that was the end of the trial. When when the trial was over, immediately we went out into the lobby outside the courtroom and all of the main media people were there, television cameras, newspaper reporters. We went over to the lead reporter for the Portland Press Herald. I believe his name was Jason Wolf, but I'm not sure. Um, and we told him that that the city had paid those people off that uh, the gentleman that got hit with the club got six figures that the other people were paid. And they did a story, I think it was the next day in the Portland Press Herald that, uh, you know, city manager pays off um, alleged victims of police brutality. So that story got out. And um, eventually what happened shortly thereafter, uh, there was other incidents of police brutality that came to light or that were reported on. And the federal government assigned uh, like a shadow team. I don't know the exact terminology, but they they put federal agents inside the police department to police with them and to watch what was going on uh, for a year or two because of the there was so much police brutality being uh, mentioned in the news and reports and whatnot. And um, and that was it. Uh, I think Chief Chetwood retired and then went to work uh, for a police department in Florida, and he's since retired fully, is my understanding. But it was very shocking for us to see that happen, to see police officers get on a stand and lie in an organized manner, to see, um, you know, internal affairs interviews doctored and altered. And uh, as a young man in my mid-20s, it was it was stunning to, to take in and realize that that stuff really does go on. And that was it. Um, after that, the cage stayed open. Oh, for years, uh, changed its name to the industry and uh, stayed open for well over 10, 12 years, I believe. Um, now it's uh, that location is, a, is still, a, now it's a restaurant and a bar. Uh, I think it's called the Independent Ice Company, which ironically is also owned in part by, uh, by Brian, my former business partner in the cage. Um, and that's the story of that. And uh, I just have wanted to tell it for years. And so there it is. Uh, my name's John Breyer. I appreciate you listening to this episode of Mainly Matters. We'll be back with more soon, and thank you for stopping by. Mm-hmm.